Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Richard Toy. He is Professor of History at University of Exeter and is the acclaimed author of a good number of books dealing with the life and times of Sir Winston Churchill. And today we are dealing with his latest book, Winston Churchill, A Life in the News, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Toy. Thank you very much. Professor, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Well, it's really um, sort of three different strands of the book. Um, The first is about Churchill's life as a journalist. So as a young man, he started out making a name for himself, uh, not only by fighting in imperial wars, but also in writing about them. And he continued his journalism actually until uh, the late 1940s, though on, um, uh, should we say, he became, became more sporadic. Uh, by, the, by the late 1940s, he was doing much less of it, but it was still a consistent theme in his life. Uh, a second theme is uh, the way in which he was portrayed in the media. And then the third theme is the, his, his efforts to control or influence the media. So sort of one of the themes of the books is uh, the ways in which, particularly during World War II, he became uh, you know, distressed and angry about the press coverage and made attempts of varying levels of success to uh, sort of control or influence what the press were writing about him. Why did you begin the book with this vignette about uh, an argument that Churchill had in June of 1929 with the socialist Daily Herald? Well, I thought it was a rather fascinating story. So the story is that he was uh, photographed by uh, the Daily Herald and, in fact, by other newspapers as well as he was leaving um, uh, Downing Street. And he was carrying a book with the title War, which was a famous uh, anti-war novel. And um, the the, the Herald uh, sort of published this with a rather sarcastic uh, caption saying that war was Mr. Churchill's favorite subject, rather implying that he, he was a warmonger. And Churchill sort of took against this um, and concluded falsely that the picture had been faked because the title wasn't showing in the, in the photos which the other papers had, um, had had taken. But in fact, it was simply that they'd been photographing it from a slightly different angle. And the Herald went to uh, the Morning Post, which is sort of its ideological opposite, a very right wing paper, and sort of got it to validate the fact that the, you know, the negatives uh, hadn't been faked. Um, and so it seemed to me, first of all, this was simply a, a, you know, an interesting story um, because uh, this had sort of been entirely forgotten about in the years since it happened. It was admittedly sort of more of a steep storm in a teacup, not a, not a major episode. But also I think it showed uh, Churchill's sensitivity towards the press and his um, willingness to lash out even when uh, often he wasn't justified in doing so. In what way or fashion was Churchill's early journalism unusual and or novel for his time? Well, I think it was unusual because actually it was very well written. 
And I'm not saying that other Victorian journalists didn't write well, but I think that there's a kind of a reflective quality in uh, Churchill's journalism. He didn't just want it to be a, a sort of a sequence of exciting events, although he certainly wanted to tell those. Um, but in contrast to um, other people who were sort of covering the same conflict, he was um, much more interested in, you know, sort of making grand statements about the significance of what was going on and making uh, almost philosophical claims, if you like. Um, so I think that um, the the idea of people sort of going to uh, foreign places and uh, you know, sending back uh, lengthy letters about them was 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 not particularly novel. Um, but I think the the novelty or, or Churchill's skill really lay in uh, his ability to use language and for description, but also to actually attempt to make people think. Uh, quite early in the book, you make reference to Churchill as being, quote, a publicity politician, unquote. Was Rosebery, Chamberlain, or for that matter, Balfour, a uh, publicity politician? Uh, not in the same way, I think. I think that um, uh, you know, those, those other men that you mentioned could rely uh, to a greater extent on um, you know, being able to make their way in, in politics without needing to, to sort of get this kind of sensational media coverage. Uh, and remember that Churchill did do things which were far more sensational than anything that any, any of them ever did uh, by escaping from prison in South Africa, to, to, to give one example. Um, and I think that um, because, um, I mean, of course, he was not, he was not exactly underprivileged, but he did have... Uh, problems with uh, you know money, um, uh, and in order to get into politics, he really needed to kind of raise a lot of money and to uh, gain a lot of attention. Because although he sort of came from a political family, uh, he was, was his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was of course somebody who had um, whose career had burned out, and that, that sort of a relationship to Lord Randolph wasn't really going to necessarily get Ch uh, Winston Churchill very far. So um, I think that. Uh, you know, he was probably much more enthusiastic for publicity. I mean, it was instrumental, but I think that he also enjoyed it in a way in which the other figures that you mentioned um, it certainly didn't do to the same extent. How did Churchill cope with the changed atmosphere in uh, political press relations engendered by the outbreak of the Great War? Well, um, I think that his... Uh, hope really that the, the outbreak of war when he, of course he was first Lord of the Admiralty was that essentially the, the press would follow the instructions that were given to it um, and to a certain extent it did but this could be uh, counterproductive so I, I have a story in the book about the sinking of a particular ship where Churchill insisted that the story not be reported and indeed the press you know, did follow the instructions and um, you know, sort of kept, this was kept under wraps until 1918. But of course, it was really um, didn't make a lot of sense to uh, keep this information secret when, because of course there had been survivors who had come ashore and the word had spread. Of course, the Germans, sort of Churchill's justification for keeping secret is that we mustn't let the Germans know. But the Germans certainly didn't know, and it made it into their newspapers quite early on. So I think that um, uh, you know, he again. He didn't necessarily understand fully how the press actually worked, and so that you know he he wanted to exercise a kind of com command and control approach to the press, 
which was probably quite typical, um, you know, only for him, but for many other politicians as well. Um, and that uh, I think he may have learned more as time went on. But I think in, in that particular instance, certainly it was counterproductive. Which politician do you think, in retrospect, best handled the press during the Great War? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are different, it uh, depends what you mean by sort of handled it well. Um, but in the sense for um, for the purposes of sort of successful self-promotion, yes. I would say that Lloyd George really did do so. Um, and that he he did so in part by giving a series of very effective speeches in sort of 1914 uh, uh, to 15 onwards, which really helped establish his uh, credentials for becoming prime minister. And he managed to create a kind of a sense of urgency um, and a belief that he was the one who was really concerned about um, uh, getting more munitions made and so forth. So, and he would certainly, um, you know, when he was told that he was sort of giving the speeches at the wrong time of day in order to get maximum coverage, he would simply change the, uh, the, the time at which he gave the speech. So I think he was um, somebody who was uh, very effective uh, with the press during that period. Uh, although, of course, after World War One, um, the, the amount of criticism that he got uh, increased and eventually contributed certainly to his downfall in 1922. So I think that there's there's a sort of degree to which there is a, a sort of a tide in the affairs of men. And it's not just about whether or not you were innately good at manipulating the press. It really is about the conditions in which you were trying to do so. And that when you are... Um, uh, you're sort of running with the tide, if you like, then it all seems terribly easy. And when the tide turns and the press turns on you, then the things which you've previously done, uh, which have been effective before, suddenly cease to work. And that politicians can find that incredibly disorientating, I think. Did Churchill obtain any positive publicity from the fact of resigning from the government in late 1915 and going out to France to fight in the trenches? Yes, he did. And, and I think it's worth saying that, you know, he rather felt, and I mean, of course, it's true that he got an awful lot of abuse as well, but he rather felt that he was sort of, you know, the most abused man, if you like. Um, uh, but in fact, it's, well, it's worth saying that at, that at more or less all points during World War One, he was, he, he found supporters, that there were people who, um, you know, would stand up for him. And so, uh, I, you know, his, and what he did was newsworthy. Um, and certainly, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, not only that he got sort of quite good coverage for leaving the aid of France, but also there wasn't any particular backlash against him uh, when he came back either. So um, although you, I, 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 I do want to emphasise that you that although I point out that Churchill was very sensitive towards the press. Of course, it has to be understood that he was under an enormous amount of pressure, uh, that he wasn't necessarily that different in, in the degree of sensitivity from other politicians. Um, but also, perhaps he didn't really see um, it's very difficult when you're on the receiving end of press coverage to um, look at it in the round and see, well, actually, I am you know, getting a fair amount of good coverage, too. What was Churchill's relations with those two very different press lords, Lord Northcliffe and Lord Beaverbrook? Well, I would I would say the difference is that um, with Beaverbrook, he was genuinely friends with him. And I think that um, the relationship with Nord, Lord Northcliffe, although 
you know, there were times when sort of they sort of claimed to be getting on well with each other. I think it was a difficult arm's length relationship, which was much more instrumental uh, for, for for Churchill. Um, you know, that that was a relationship which had many ups and downs, but, but fundamentally, um, I don't think that Northcliffe really liked Churchill very much, or vice versa. Whereas with Beaverbrook, uh, although it got Churchill into trouble in various ways, um, that I think that uh, Churchill enjoyed Beaverbrook's um, mischievous nature, um, and so that um, you know, he could be maybe tempted by Beaverbrook to do unwise things on occasion, but I think that he sort of genuinely got pleasure out of that relationship. Uh, post-war, what were the, what were, if any, changes in Churchill's relations with the press? Uh, Post-World War One. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, you've sort of got to divide it into two periods because, of course, there's the sort of the famous wilderness years and uh, maybe worth focusing on, on that period. Um, I would say that sort of during the during the sort of up until 1930, 1931, he sort of continued in, in more or less the same way in that there were some papers that were sort of planning abuse on him and there were others which were uh, you know, sort of giving him a fair measure of support. Um, after 1931, when he's you know, simply a, a backbencher, although a, a very prominent backbencher, again, he felt that he was being uh, sort of unjustly excluded from not only the press, but from, by this point, the BBC. And that's a key change as well, the introduction of uh, electronic media, film, and film newsreels and, and radio. Um, at the same time, it's you know, worth saying that, of course, Churchill did have uh, access to considerable press coverage. He had his own columns in various different newspapers throughout the decade, uh, even when that went against sometimes the editorial line of those papers. Um, and so, um, although he kind of felt marginalised, uh, particularly towards the end of the of the decade, as uh, you know, the Munich Agreement starts to be um, you know, really his claims about it are pr- proven to be justified, then there is a sort of a big pro-Churchill movement that springs up in the press. So, um, you know, the government was certainly trying to manipulate the press in general in its own interests and therefore you know, rather against Churchill. And so I think it's, you know, he had some grounds for complaint. But again, it is just worth emphasizing um, the you know, high degree of access to press coverage, which he still had. And what was Churchill's relations with the early BBC? Well, um of course, the general strike here is crucial. Uh, the general strike of 1926, when Churchill uh, took over the running of the, you know, or helps establish the sort of the government newspaper, the British Gazette. And again, he wanted to really turn the BBC into a propaganda arm of the government, uh, as, just as the British Gazette was. Now, John Reith, who was the director general of the BBC, actually was really pretty much totally on the side of the government uh, during the strike, but felt that the BBC needed to preserve an appearance, at least, of independence, at least at some sense of a kind of arm's length relationship. And um, that was probably wise, actually, from the point of view of good propaganda, but, but Churchill didn't really sort of grasp that um, and 
continually, really for the rest of his career, was quite hostile to the BBC. Um, in the 1950s, sort of, you know, saying it was it was filled with communists and so forth. And so I think that again, you might say that for somebody who was simply a backbencher, uh, Churchill got reasonable degree of access to BBC and made a number of broadcasts during the 1930s. Um, uh, but of course, you've got to remember that BBC coverage was very different in those days. You didn't have you, the news programs were essentially somebody reading out a script. Uh, you didn't have interviews, so Churchill couldn't just expect somebody to come and stick a microphone in front of his face if uh, and ask him for a comment. When he went on the radio, he was you know, on a number of occasions going on and giving a full-length broadcast. Was Churchill at all aware of the abuse he was receiving from the uh, sheet truth? And was he uh, at all familiar with who was behind it? And in essence, it was a mouthpiece for Chamberlain. Mm. Um, I feel sure he was aware of it, actually, because one thing which uh, the book makes clear is that he was a voracious reader of the press. And I don't uh, have I don't really have any particular evidence of him reacting or responding to a particular article or a particular issue of truth. But I'm sure that. You know, the Westminster gossip of such would be that he, well, A, he'd definitely been aware of the coverage and B, he'd probably been aware of, um, uh, you know, he may not have known the details, but the, but the sense that the, the government were behind this, um, uh, I'm sure that he would have been aware of that. Um, I'm not sure that specifically he was particularly upset about uh, truth in particular, at least I can only say that, that I haven't come across strong evidence that he was. Was there a marked change in the coverage, I'm sorry, in the interaction with the press between Chamberlain and Churchill after September 1939? Well, again, as sort of First Lord of the Admiralty, uh, Churchill is then sort of very keen to um, control news of uh, sinkings for example um, and he wants to be the one who makes who sort of releases the news and he kind of wants to uh, to some extent manipulate the information so that when a piece of bad news comes out it is you know, matched by a piece of good news which means kind of holding up bits of information uh, if need be to sort of try and make it come out the right way he's maybe more effective at doing that during the second world war than he was uh, during the first world war um, and also, I think that um, Churchill does make uh, broadcasts um, in the you know, well during the phony war period, where um, he maybe comes across as significantly more dynamic uh, than Chamberlain, and as a more effective broadcaster, which certainly helps set him up for um, the you know, t- taking over the premiership in in May 1940. I think that. Um, although one or two historians have maybe suggested otherwise, I don't think that Churchill is directly trying to manipulate the press in his own interests in order to be able to take over. I don't see evidence that he was uh, disloyal to Churchill, uh, sorry, to Chamberlain, and, and was, was stirring up the press to, to that effect. Uh, May 1940, do you see more continuity or discontinuity in the way the press was handled by the government? Probably, broadly speaking, continuity insofar as if Churchill had been upset that the press had been kind of manipulated against him before 
September 1939, then he still wanted the government to continue to have control. So I don't think that there's, um, well, maybe the biggest shift comes when uh, Brendan Bracken later on takes over the, the Ministry of Information is probably a more effective Minister of Information than uh, than Duff Cooper, who was um, t- taking that role uh, from 1940 onwards. So um, I think that um, you don't see, I don't, I don't think there's some sort of revolution which occurs on account of Churchill becoming prime minister. Uh, and as I say, it is, it is Bracken becoming Minister of Information later in the war, which probably, um, again, I wouldn't say it was revolutionary, but I think it is actually a move in the right direction. Church has appointed an effective person who actually does really understand the press in a way which Churchill personally maybe didn't. Uh, was Churchill's handling of the press and the press campaign in the 1945 election the reasons why the Conservatives lost? Probably not, in that most scholars would agree, I think, that the real key change in public opinion had come earlier in the war. We know that um, opinion polls were being produced from June 1943 onwards and the Conservatives were consistently behind. And so Churchill suffers really in part from the unpopularity of the Conservative Party. We know that he personally is is very popular. Um, uh, so I think that he has an uphill, uh, you know, a, a very big hill to climb. And also that actually compared to the opinion polls earlier in the year, that the, if anything, the campaign meant that the Conservatives reclaimed some lost ground. So um, I, I don't I, mean, I think it's clearly the case that the Conservatives didn't manage to sort of get the killer issue uh, that they wanted, and, and they were obviously sort of searching around for various uh, ways to you know, try and uh, undermine Labour. So they, they they certainly didn't have any great success in finding really effective themes. Um, but certainly, I wouldn't put. I mean, Churchill felt that he if he might have done better if he had more support from the Times, for example. I think he was quite resentful about that. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, what Labour benefits from is that papers like, in particular, the Daily Mirror, a mass market paper which has moved from, you know, at the beginning of the century, it had been a conservative paper. During the 1930s, it moved very much to the left. So Labour benefited from that. And that wasn't, there probably wasn't anything that Churchill or his ministers could have said, which was really going to change the, the, the Daily Mirror's editorial line. Why was Churchill so unenthusiastic about television as a medium? Well, I think partly simply because by the time it came along, he was very old and that familiarizing himself with a new medium was rather difficult. Um, I think, you know, of course, the medium doesn't look terribly different from newsreel to some extent. And I think that Churchill was... um, Good with newsreel in that when he was doing walkabouts, uh, for example, after you know, through, through bombed areas and sort of waving his, his hat on a stick, he was brilliant at that kind of showmanship. I think he was less effective when he was speaking directly to camera, oddly, even though, of course, he was such an effective broadcaster. So I think that, um, you know, one might say that if television had come along when Churchill was a young man, he'd probably have taken the trouble to master it and could have been a brilliant performer. Um, but simply 
you know, having done things in a particular way for a very long time, it obviously becomes difficult to adjust to new technology the older that you get. Uh, without um, going in, into too much, uh, overall, how would you compare Churchill's relations with the press with other 20th century prime ministers? Well, um, I think he probably fits into um, a fairly consistent pattern, which is that most prime ministers have felt you know, sensitive about the press and have uh, you know, lashed out at it in various ways. Um, and of course, you know, that, that's understandable because that, that person is the person who is the most prominent political figure in the country and is going to be on the receiving end of, um, you know, most criticism. I mean, I think that there are some prime ministers, maybe Harold Millen, James Callaghan, who were perhaps a bit more, were a bit more phlegmatic about it. So, um, you know, one can see other, um, prime ministers such as Margaret Thatcher, for example, John Major, very, very sensitive about the press. Um, so I think that um, I would also just say that maybe Churchill was the most innovative of um, you know, 20th century prime ministers, with the possible exception of Lloyd George in their dealings with the press, um, partly because he really had this. He did, although I say I don't think he completely understood how Fleet Street worked um, because he was never a, a journalist who worked on a paper uh, in a in a newspaper building, but he did have the skill set of journalism. He did know how to write an effective article. He did know how to, to grab the reader's attention. And of course, he made a great deal of money doing it. So I think that um, you know, his all round skills um, on this in this respect uh, were very impressive. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? Gosh, um, I suppose I think it would simply be that, um, you know, being a prominent political leader is a very challenging job. It's obviously very understandable when people uh, react to it, uh, you know, react to criticism in a sort of a harsh way when they, they feel they've been unfairly treated. I think the message would be that, um, you know, although maybe there was sort of a close call during World War II when Churchill really you know, had a very strong instinct to shut down the Daily Mirror when he felt it was being too critical, which I think would have been a bad thing for press freedom. I think that ultimately, uh, you know, his sometimes kind of repressive instincts weren't generally put into effect uh, because other people um, you know, didn't simply rush around actually to do his bidding, that they, they, they realized that maybe he needed to be deflected or humored in various ways. And so I think it is these sort of institutional restraints which helped uh, preserve press freedom. And I think those are important, given that it is quite natural that politicians will often react in a way uh, which, you know, on the face of it looks oversensitive. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Toy. Thank you very much. <laughs>